Hiya, my name is Andre Ganoela. Welcome to the Burn Back Podcast. Uh, as many of you know, we've been doing some climate change-oriented uh, episodes uh, in collaboration with the Climate Migration Council, uh, and that's really raised uh, my eye on a lot of these different emerging uh, security threats. Uh, and one topic I really wanted to cover sort of independently uh, of that collaboration, but, you know, really looking to the future is how uh, water and national security really mix. Uh, just a fun fact, at the University of Chicago, I took a course uh, called Hydropolitics uh, with a guy named Michael Taboris, and uh, we did a lot of studies on like how uh, water sustainability uh and the sharing of that resource can really lead to conflict. Uh, so today I have joining me uh, Courtney Weatherby, uh, who is a deputy director of the Stimson Center Southeast Asia Program and a research analyst with the Energy, Water and Sustainability Program. Uh, her research focuses on sustainable infrastructure and energy development challenges in Southeast Asia and the Indo-Pacific, uh, particularly at the nexus of issues in food, water and energy uh, in the greater Mekong subregion. Uh, so Courtney, thanks for joining me here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Andre. So yeah, so I mean, in the introduction, you know, we've been focusing on these climate change issues, uh, but sort of separate from that mini series, just the fact that water, you know, it's it's the lifeblood of humanity, of life on our planet, and so on. Uh, but how does water fit with national security? I mean, what in general is that connection? Why are we here on this episode talking about water and national security in general? Sure. So, I mean, you know, just as you said, water really is lifeblood. It's absolutely essential to human life. It's essential to human livelihoods. And for that reason, uh, because it's a limited resource and there are trade-offs involved with how it's managed, it is ultimately a national security concern. You know, access to water, access to clean water, access to enough water is vital at multiple scales, ranging from the individual household to make sure that people are healthy to looking at sort of broader economic considerations. You know, many economies around the world are still heavily agricultural. Agriculture relies deeply on access to water regularly, consistently, and of good quality. It's also vital to industry. Many manufacturing processes require water at various points. It's essential for energy access, you know, not just hydropower where you literally use water to produce electricity, but also to coal and other thermal plants that use water as a cooling mechanism. So at various points through daily society, we rely entirely on accessibility of water. Uh, so it is ultimately sort of a key um, battery. It keeps, our, it keeps our society running. It keeps everything working smoothly. So uh, what is water security? How do we define water security? What does it mean? Sure. So water security, uh, you know, there's a few different definitions floating around at its most basic and perhaps narrow level. Water security is having the ability as a society to ensure access to enough safe and quality water to protect livelihoods, human well-being, and socioeconomic development. You know, so questions like, is there enough water? Is there enough drinking water? Is water available and is it managed in a way that's accessible to everybody? Um, is there enough to support key economic processes and in agricultural industrial fields? And is it produced and used in a sustainable way so that you're not gonna run out of it in the foreseeable future? That's kind of the narrowest definition, right? Looking at water security, as a consideration of water supply, essentially. Um, but it really also isn't fully comprehensive because when you think about, you know, you, you mentioned climate change and, and environment is sort of a precipitating factor for, for these episodes. But when you look at the natural world, that also runs on water. You know, we have a planetary water cycle. Um, you know, entire ecosystems have evolved around the natural rhythms of water flows throughout the seasons and throughout the year. Uh, so the environment in which we live depends on water. Um, and even more broadly than that, uh, there's sort of the the aspect of health. You know, water, like 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 food and, and energy, it sort of has its tendrils in many different aspects of human society. Um, so when you're looking at water management, water security can also be said to include things like ensuring that risks related to water are managed, whether those are health risks like waterborne diseases, whether that's risks like infrastructure management processes um, to ensure that you're building resiliency and contingencies for water-related disasters, whether that's a drought or a flood or a major storm. Um, as well as sort of the environmental and ecosystem protection aspect. So beyond, you know, the questions of is there enough water, you know, 
Is it safe? Is the water polluted? Uh, is it contaminated by waterborne diseases? Is it managed in a way that is degrading to local ecosystems and all of the other services that they provide? So I think when you look at water security, some folks will take kind of that very narrow focus on the supply aspect, but long-term and big picture thinking uh, for, for sustainability reasons, we need to think beyond that and consider these other factors. And I think it's also useful to note, you know, we often hear sort of water scarcity, water stress, um, you know, indexes, they're often put at the national level, but this is, is can vary significantly inside a country, particularly larger countries with multiple geographies involved. And so there's sort of the big picture perspective. And then there's also the local perspective of how are things managed, you know, at the very local level, you know, is there the governance and infrastructure in place to support all of those aspects of water that we just talked about? Yeah, I mean, when you talk about like how uh, water scarcity can vary uh, at the local levels, right, within a country, you know, I guess for all the Americans who are listening in, right, think of like California and Michigan, right, like Los Angeles needs a lot of water, but it doesn't really have access to a lot of like water just like in that general Los Angeles area, right? Like we need to bring that water from elsewhere. Michigan has a couple of great lakes all around. So, uh, I mean, that's that's the thing. So uh, how has water insecurity contributed to conflicts? Yeah, so I think oftentimes the term water wars uh, gets a lot of attention in the media. So, you know, when people are thinking water and conflict, they often think about the link between, you know, physical conflict. And obviously there are numerous instances throughout history where conflict has been sparked, at least at a local level, over access to water. You know, I mean, you mentioned California. I think in the early 1900s, there were some instances of uh, farmers burning and, you know, going in and destroying infrastructure uh, because it was affecting their, their access to water. So, you know, there's many instances of sort of local disputes and tensions and and physical conflict um, because of water's importance to all of all of those societal aspects that we talked about before. I think when we're thinking at sort of the big picture scale, the state, the international scale, as it were, um, tensions over water are undoubtedly a factor in international relations and in bilateral relations, especially when there is sort of a long running ongoing conflict over water access tied to, for instance, use of uh, a river system for irrigation or hydropower or other uses upstream that are impacting communities and countries downstream in terms of their access to water or their quality of water. So, you know, there's numerous instances, especially in modern history, where everything is documented effectively that you could point to of various disputes. But very rarely does, does that, at least in recent history, as a sole factor, lead to sort of interstate conflict. So when we're thinking water conflict, oftentimes it's more conflict as a, a tension point, but one of many different tension points rather than as necessarily the immediate direct spark for actual interstate conflict. Obviously, there's always the threat of that. There's the concern of that. We've had many high-level uh, profile uh, leaders on the international stage talk about the concern that water will be the precipitating point for conflict in the future. And I think partly because of that concern and that potential tension increasing with climate change um, and with increasing use of water because of population growth and urbanization and consumption changes, there's been sort of many, many efforts globally to establish frameworks to manage these disputes and conflicts uh, outside of sort of a military sense. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's super interesting, right? Like water has not necessarily been, or at least often not been the direct, uh, you know, a factor contributing to a conflict, but one of many factors. Uh, but I also sort of want to explore, you know, how does water scarcity, water insecurity, how, how does the linkage between that and say something like agriculture, uh, how directly can that lead to conflict? Or historically speaking, has that directly led to conflict? Because I mean, if you don't have any water, you can't really farm your crops. Uh, what, what's your take on that? Is it sort of like a similar sort of situation? It's like one of many factors or uh, and sort of when we're talking about that, how frequent is it with uh, interstate conflict versus intrastate conflict within a state? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when we're talking about sort of conflict in water, it's hard to necessarily look throughout history and point to a specific statistical uh, indication here, because I, I don't think anyone's really done that that study at a, a sort of global scale. But, you know, when we're talking about conflict, I'd say there's a few different types, right? There's conflict between sectors. 
So when you're talking about agriculture, agriculture uses about 70% of freshwater resources. Generally speaking, it's extremely water intensive. It is by far the largest you know, human consumption of water in the system. Um, and so oftentimes what you will run into is you're, you're, you know, in a year of scarcity, in a year of historically drought, you know, drought is kind of usually the precipitating factor that causes what might normally be a scarce and valuable resource to suddenly become a point of tension and conflict. Um, and it's usually over, you know, who gets to use the water, right? It's not, is water available at all for everyone? All, you know, there, there might be a less amount of water in a drought year, but it's over, okay, well, you know, with the remaining water, with the available water, who gets to use it, who has access to it, who has control over it. And oftentimes, you know, sometimes droughts can be sudden. They can snap into place in one year. Oftentimes we also see these are kind of multi-year tensions. And so, you know, internally in the United States, you pointed to sort of the, the challenges out, out west in the Colorado River Basin. I think this is a really good example of kind of a long running conflict where you could look over the last hundred years and see numerous points throughout time where there have been disagreements. Who gets to use the water? Who has the right to use the water? Is it the up, upstream riparians? Is it whoever settled areas first? Is it whoever signed legal documents? Um, and sort of as a result of those numerous tensions and conflicts, there were sort of this in, inside the United States between the state levels, um, negotiation, you know, allocations put into place, timelines for reviewing things, processes to try and manage these disputes because nobody wants physical conflict and nobody, uh, you know, everyone's sort of aware of the fact that, you know, you can't make water out of nothing. If the water's not there, the water's not there. And so the question is, how do you then manage access to it in a way that is equitable and just and fair uh, within sort of the existing system? When you're looking internationally, obviously, that's also been the driver for, for key international treaties surrounding water. Um, again, it's, it's coming down to usually disputes over trade-offs. Um, sometimes, you know, there's kind of a clear instigating factor, you know, pollution, for instance, is a really obvious incidence where somebody is responsible for something with water quality. You can track it back to something and then there's potentially uh, a resolution mechanism in terms of paying for damages. When it comes to things like water allocations, that's often something that requires just more negotiation, uh, in some cases, lawsuits um, between countries to try and settle um, how to how to allocate things properly. So uh, what about the linkages between uh, energy security and water security? You did mention, you know, water is a big sort of source of uh, energy. Uh, could you uh, flush that out a little bit? Sure. So this is going to vary country to country. You know, when you're looking at the global energy system, um, some countries are extremely dependent on hydropower. Hydropower is kind of the first large scale provider of electricity. So if you look at uh, the energy supply of the United States, through our history, for instance, hydropower used to play a crucial role uh, in supplying electricity to the country as a whole. And hydropower is kind of the easiest, most obvious link to energy security, in part because some countries are just geographically suited. Um, you know, they have they have deep gorges, they have valleys, they have canyons that are really suited for hydropower development. It's a really large part of their energy supply system. So, you know, in, in countries where hydropower is a major contributor to the electricity supply and the energy supply um, in drought years, for instance, uh, or when the water regime upstream changes and the water flowing downstream is, is not the same as it used to be, that could cause major problems. So for Southeast Asia, for instance, there was a major drought back in 2019 and 2020, and you had numerous hydropower dams across the region essentially producing 50% of the electricity that they would normally be producing because they're just water wasn't enough water in the system to run it through uh, the turbines and produce power. So, you know, there's a very obvious physical tie when you're looking at the role of hydropower. Um, and particularly when we're thinking in terms of climate change and future energy supply, um, hydropower is kind of a key part of the energy transition. You know, it doesn't rely on rare earth minerals. Um, it is relatively cheap. It's historical. It's reliable uh, in systems where you know how much water is coming downstream. So a lot of countries are projecting to increase hydropower. And it's kind of a key part of meeting um, the goals of building a clean and renewable energy system. So, you know, recognizing that things are changing and maybe it, it won't be as reliable or won't run the same way it has historically run is a key challenge for, for many of these countries um, that has to be taken into account in terms of how they are planning their energy mix. Beyond that as well, when you're looking at thermal plants, for instance, um, water has often applied sort of a key cooling mechanism. So the availability of water and being able to use that to cool down the system and keep things running is important. 
And even solar panels uh, have to be cleaned and water is usually uh, the, the easiest mechanism for that. So there's various sort of ties between the water system and the water cycle uh, and ensuring that electricity production can remain uh, on course. So again, you did mention, right, like water scarcity, water insecurity is not necessarily a direct driver. It's not like the catalyst that would, uh, you know, preview a major conflict, but it is certainly a major factor. Uh, what are some examples of major conflicts uh, that perhaps uh, may be known by a general audience, but also perhaps may have been major, but just unfortunately, given the media landscape, it's not has not been covered, uh, where a root cause, perhaps one of those factors has been uh, water insecurity, whether it's just because, you know, no drinking water, or because it's linked to, you know, agricultural or energy related reasons or other reasons? Sure. I mean, I think probably the the best example of sort of an ongoing conflict over the last decade um, in, in terms of where water is a root cause is actually the Nile River dispute. Um, so we've seen, um, you know, the, the Nile River is one of the largest river systems in the world. Um, and there's been really over the last, I think, about 15 years, ongoing tensions between uh, Egypt and Ethiopia over one specific project, the Grand Renaissance Dam, uh, which Ethiopia is looking to is is currently building and filling up um, on its portion of the Blue Nile upstream. Um, that's the part of the Nile system that provides about eighty five percent of the total water, so it's a major impact to water flow downstream when you build a dam and have to fill up the reservoir and steps over time. Um, and this has sparked major concerns in Egypt. And you know, this is this is sort of a unique situation because Egypt is more reliant on one river system, the Nile, than most countries are in the world. So Egypt, like many other countries in sort of the you know Middle East North African region, is quite water stressed, severely water stressed. Um, and so any change to the availability of water that's flowing downstream, even if it is temporary when the dam is filling up over the course of a few years, is viewed as somewhat of an existential threat in Egypt. And so there have been disputes throughout the dam's planning, throughout the dam's construction, um, and then in the last couple of years as the dam has been filling up, which rose to the level of um, you know, leadership in Egypt threatening to take alternative actions against the dam. You know, you've occasionally seen reports over years of people suggesting that Egypt could potentially try to blow the dam up. Now, I don't think that's currently on the table anymore. Egypt, uh, Sudan, and Ethiopia are currently at the negotiating table trying within the next few months to come up with a very clear treaty of obligations for how that dam can fill and be operated to avoid that sort of existential threat downstream. But I think that's probably one of the clearest examples where a change to the water regime upstream is a direct source of conflict. And again, it is not the only source of conflict, right? It builds on sort of historical tensions in the region that are also linked to water, but linked to colonization and colonial time periods in terms of what are, what are you know, currently viewed through many lenses, sort of unequal allocations of water to Egypt versus countries upstream. You know, it's, it's the, the challenge of changing conditions where you're seeing massive population growth in new areas. So you're seeing new demands on water and how how does that fit into sort of an existing allocation regime? And then perhaps even at the heart, you're seeing concerns over climate change and how these physical infrastructure investments that are going in now, you know, they might not necessarily immediately cause existential considerations, but down, uh, you know, down the line, as we see changes to water availability from other sources, from rainfall, how is that going to affect um, the countries involved. So, you know, I think that's kind of a good example of where there's a very clear immediate link to uh, to water being kind of the precipitating event in conflict. But I would say you can look throughout history as well and see um, sort of indications um, of <clears throat> of drought being a precipitating factor in in conflict. I think. Um, you know, in, in recent years in, in Syria and Jordan, you've seen sort of the drought impacting migration, you've seen it impacting agricultural production, and you've sort of seen that as one of many factors that that led to or, or um, was involved in conflict, even though it was not uh, necessarily the precipitating event. I do appreciate the use of the word precipitating, uh, pun not intended, I guess. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that sort of begs the question, right? You talked about so, so, sort of the East Nile uh, crisis, essentially, with water. Uh, and that sort of raises a question for me about, you know, how have countries 
uh, generally approach the sharing of water resources when you know rivers lakes may cross those uh, boundaries maybe share those boundaries of a lake may be shared by multiple countries uh, and so on i mean when i sort of think of it i think of uh, india pakistan they have this treaty called the indus waters treaty uh but India and Pakistan have often been in conflict uh, for one reason or the other, and conflict in the future. I mean, I'm not going to predict anything, but I mean, a conflict in the future may well be possible, right? Uh, what happens to those agreements? Uh, is there a real risk that one country or the other, uh, not just with India, Pakistan, but with you know other different regions, that one country or the other may be denied uh, water resources that are so crucial? Uh, to the livelihood of their populations. I mean, what what is the nature of the risk and how do countries approach this? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's lots to unpack there with that question, but, you know, it is, I think, widely recognized that this is a challenge um, that, could, that needs to be addressed through legal mechanisms. And so, you know, you mentioned the Indus Waters Treaty. That's one of many different treaties that have been signed in other major river systems. You know, I can point off the top of my head to the Mekong River Agreement in 1995 in Southeast Asia. Um, the Indus Waters Treaty, I think, was signed in 1960. The Ganges Water Agreement was negotiated in 1977 and signed in 1996. So, you know, throughout the last, you know, 50 years, we've seen many different countries negotiating kind of bilateral treaties with their neighbors to try and identify, you know, specific allocations, whether it's seasonal or annual, um, for how water can be guaranteed to flow between countries um, or and how to manage disputes and resolutions in the case where, um, for whatever reason, that target is not met um, or there are other considerations or concerns. I think it's worth noting that in many of these agreements and all of those that I just mentioned were signed before there was kind of the global approach to UN Water Courses, which is the UN Water Courses Convention, uh, which was negotiated and, and laid out in 1997, but didn't actually enter into force until 2014 because it took a long time for enough countries to ratify it so that it had crossed that threshold inside the UN. And, you know, that Water Courses Convention essentially lays out principles for how these treaties could be operated as best practice and requires members to um, prevent, control, and reduce the transboundary impacts of whatever developments they're doing on the river to use transboundary rivers and waters in a, quote, reasonable and equitable way uh, and ensure that waters are sustainably managed. Now, of course, you know, this still leaves things up to sort of local determination for, you know, what is reasonable? What is equitable? How do you consider equitability within sort of that historical context of, you know, what was equitable when a treaty was signed in 1960 versus what is equitable now when you've got population changes, when you've got climate change potentially impacting and changing the way that water availability um, is there. So, you know, that there are sort of these, these challenges often with, with these treaties where they do exist um, that they might need updating uh, because the baseline situation might have changed on, on one side or the other. But generally speaking, many of these treaties have sought to either establish sort of a river basin organization, like a river commission on the Mekong. We've got the Mekong River Commission um, in the United States, the U.S. and Canada back in 1909 signed a trans boundary, a boundary waters treaty um, that created a specific commission um, to essentially solve disputes called the International Joint Commission. And that is essentially a you know, independent process when there is a dispute, it goes through bilateral negotiations through that process. And it's been used over a hundred times to resolve transboundary disputes between the United States and Canada. So obviously, you know, when you've got these treaties, when you've got these processes, the key aspect or the key question is how do you enforce it if, if one of the actors is behaving badly? Um, how do you enforce it if both of the actors are behaving badly? You know, and ultimately, it comes down to that question of political will, uh, especially if it is um, something where, you know, there are um, aspects or actors outside of sort of the federal, you know, national level who are involved with this. So we've seen some, I would say, perhaps challenges even in the United States and Canada, which has a very uh, positive relationship where certain actors, whether it's environmental groups or local citizens, have actually sought to move outside of that uh, appointed re resolution mechanism to um, have lawsuits to try and change behaviors. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing, um, but it does potentially weaken 
the, the mechanism that was created and placed there. And in countries where there is a much more complicated political relationship, like I know you mentioned India and Pakistan, I think you could say you have sort of similar complications sometimes in Southeast Asia with between you know China and downstream communities, even between the, the lower Mekong countries themselves over how to use water. Um, and I can point, for instance, to one example where the Mekong River Commission and the, the, the treaty that was signed in 1995 requires notification to downstream countries of any infrastructure project with major transboundary impacts. You know, it could be a dam, it could be an irrigation project. And I know of at least a few instances where member countries have not abided by that notification process before they began construction on the project. Um, and unfortunately, if you know, if the, the river basin organization itself is not given any actual legal mandate to enforce things, it ultimately is, is deferred back to the country level. You know, the Mekong River Commission, for instance, is not tasked to force countries to abide. So if countries simply don't submit something, the Mekong River Commission doesn't necessarily have the power to force them to do that. And it ultimately has to get kicked back to the bilateral or, you know, a diplomatic multinational mechanism to negotiate on how to resolve those types of disputes. And you mentioned the Mekong River Basin and what's going on there. And I do want to devote a good portion of this interview uh, to that uh, to that situation, sort of using it as a case study of, you know, what we've been discussing in terms of uh, water security, water resource sharing, and so on. But before we get there, you know, we've been talking a little bit about sort of these conflicts in general. Uh, oftentimes, you know, like countries may take actions in their own interests uh, that may impede uh, water resources downstream. Uh, has there, I mean, uh, if you can speak to this, I'd appreciate it, but has there ever been a situation where a country has intentionally uh, tried to block, you know, the sharing of water resources uh, with, say, like an adversarial country? Uh, and as far as you know, are there like any like, you know, like say like the Geneva Conventions forbid like, you know, war crimes of different sorts, right? Like, are there any like repercussions, you know, or is there a thinking that, you know, the blocking of water could be like, say, a war crime or something else? You know, that's a very good question. I do have to admit, I'm not sure that my knowledge of sort of the global water situation versus the water situation in the specific basins I've looked at is is enough to answer that. But I would say, I, you know, I'm not aware off the top of my head of any lawsuit or instance raised at an international court where the point was that it was done purposefully. You know, most of the instances I know of are, um, are, are ultimately tied back to decisions that were made in domestic interests um, for, you know, real reasons that happen to have impacts downstream rather than, for instance, as a deliberate bullying effort to prevent water from flowing across um, international borders for the purpose of doing downstream harm. I do think sometimes you'll see language that might reflect that. For instance, if you're looking um, in, you know, you mentioned the Indus Water Treaty earlier. Um, I think there have been sort of numerous points of tension throughout time where there were where there were threats to change um, behavior that would thus impact the neighbor. But again, it was always tied back to, well, you know, we, you know, in this time of scarcity, we're looking to do this domestically. And so if we can't work things out, this is what we're going to do in our own interests. It was not uh, necessarily phrased or framed uh, as an intent to directly harm downstream countries without, you know, first focusing on the benefits that it would bring domestically in that sense. Uh, so now I want to talk about the Mekong River Basin. Can you tell us a little bit about the situation around the Mekong River Basin? And I guess sort of uh, on a personal level, you know, why do you sort of see it as very vital, you know, for you to study this? You know, like, why do you want to focus on this one uh, specifically? What drew you to it? Sure. So, I mean, you know, looking throughout my own history, there was sort of a matter of luck that led me to focusing on Southeast Asia. But when you're looking at the Mekong River system, I think it's it's unique in a number of ways. Um, you know, it is one, you know, it's not unique in that it is a massive river system. There's one of the largest river systems in the world. Um, I think it's, you know, in, in terms of population, it's got about 70 million people living just in this one river basin system. Um it is a transboundary river system. It starts in the headwaters start up in China, uh, Tibetan Plateau, and then flow downstream with about half of the river flowing through China. Um, and then the lower half of the river going through a small portion of Myanmar's territory or, or a small portion of Myanmar's territory feeds into it. Um, and then it flows through Thailand. It flows through Laos. It flows through Cambodia and then empties out into the ocean in southern Vietnam. So, you know, it is a fully transboundary river, which gives it some 
some interesting complexities. Um, it's unique in that it is also home to the world's largest freshwater fishery. So it's um, Mekong, the Mekong River system alone is responsible for, depending on what study you look at, between 15 and 20% of the global freshwater fish catch. Um, so, you know, that's that's a massive contributor to food, um, especially in the Mekong region. But you can, for instance, here in the United States, go to your grocery store and find fish that are imported from Cambodia uh, or, or from, from Thailand, you know, into the food, the global food supply. Um, so, you know, it plays a really important role in regional food security. Um, it plays a hugely important role culturally when you look at the countries, particularly um, in Laos and Cambodia, where the almost the entirety of the country is within the Mekong River system. Um, you know, it sort of the way that the, the seasonal rhythms flow has impacted cultural traditions. It impacts food uh, culture and sort of the, the cultural elements of food uh, when certain things are available. Um, and it plays a really massive role economically for all of these countries. So Vietnam, for instance, is a great example of this, where uh, the portion of the Vietnamese country area that's inside the Mekong River Basin, it's relatively small, but um, it provides about 23% of Vietnam's GDP and most of its rice exports. So for instance, when you're thinking of the importance of the Mekong River system economically around the region, I think Vietnam's a great example of this. It's a fairly small portion of Vietnam's land area, but when you look at you know, it's productivity, particularly in agriculture. 90% of Vietnam's rice exports are from the Mekong Delta area and about 23% of its national GDP comes from that area. So it, it plays sort of an overwhelming uh, and, and, and uh, impressive role in providing um, economic development opportunities for Vietnam. So when, when you think about this as, as, as a region as a whole, it's hard to think of a system um, that is more impactful than the Mekong across so many different aspects of culture and society and economic development. So when we talk about the countries that are the key stakeholders, uh, you know, among the Mekong uh, River Basin, uh, I mean, are, would you say, are there like any countries that sort of like, whose actions uh, along that river would disproportionately affect uh, the other countries downstream? Like, I mean, I don't want to use the term power players, but is there like a country like whose, I guess, power along the Mekong River will really impact other countries downstream in a negative fashion? Sure. So, I mean, when I was, you know, when you, when I was talking before, it's mostly focusing on the river system itself. But it's it's very difficult to think about the river system as it stands today without looking at dams. There's hundreds of dams uh, under development around the Mekong region. Many of them are concentrated in two countries, um, China and Laos. Uh, Laos has sort of this effort to be the battery of Southeast Asia through exporting hydropower since almost the entire countries within the Mekong Basin, most or all of that hydropower is essentially affecting the Mekong River system. Um, but equally importantly, and perhaps more importantly, when we're thinking of power politics here, is the role of China. Uh, China is the most upstream country, so its actions in the Mekong River system will all have impacts as it, the river flows downstream. Um, and China has built some of the largest dams in the world on the mainstream of the Mekong River uh, upstream. And it has numerous tributary dams as well to supply mostly hydropower uh, into, you know, clean, clean hydropower into China's energy system. A lot of that is exported to uh, major markets out in the East. Um, but it has major impacts in terms of when water is available and flowing downstream. Um, you know, when you've got two, in particularly two massive reservoirs um, on the mainstream of the river in China, their actions when they release water, when they restrict water, have very outsized impacts on um, communities in Thailand and along the Thai Lao border that are close to the, that those dams. Um, but because of the way that the river system works, you can you can still track those impacts on water levels and availability um, all the way down in Cambodia as well. Um, so it, it's hard to sort of understate China's impact solely because of the size of, of these projects. You know, if you look at the um, the entirety of uh, the the stored water. So, and our, our team actually does this. We, we use satellite imagery, remote sensing to sort of track and estimate how all 55 of the largest dams um, across the Mekong Basin in Southeast Asia are operating. And about half of that storage capacity is just in 
those dams on the mainstream in China. Uh, so when you're talking about one outsized impact, um, you know, that China plays a major role there. Um, but I do think it's important as well to look at Laos simply because of the scale um, of what is being developed there with so many dams under construction. So again, when you're when you're looking at the river system, it is ultimately sort of this cumulative impact system where everyone's built dams, everyone's had some impact. Some countries, because of the size and because of how they operate their dams, are playing uh, more of an impactful role than others. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what your team at Stimson's uh, doing. Like, you know, what does your work actually look like uh, in terms of focusing on the Mekong River? Uh, what types of studies are you actually conducting? Like, what does that work look like? Just so we can give our general audience like an idea of what, you know, of what's happening. Sure. So one of the big challenges um, in the Mekong region since I started working on it a decade ago uh, is really the sort of the challenge of information sharing. So uh, 10 years ago, when I started looking at the Mekong, one of the most commonly asked questions was, well, how much water is actually stored in all of these dams? Because you could certainly find lists of dams. Uh, you could find press releases about dams. You could sometimes find technical specs for how individual dams were expecting uh, to run or to store water. Um, but nobody had any information sort of at the cumulative level looking across all of the projects in the basin to understand how are these individual projects and these cumulative collection of projects actually impacting the river. You know, you could find anecdotal stories uh, of how dam releases impacted local communities by raising the river level one or more meters suddenly and sweeping away boats, sweeping away crops, sweeping away or damaging um, equipment along the banks. Uh, you could find anecdotal stories about um, how the seasonal floods that come every year in the Mekong system as part of the monsoon season, which are, are actually really crucial for the region's productivity because they renew sediment, they renew um, you know, nutrients in the soil, they they support fish migration in the world's most productive fishery. You know, you hear anecdotal stories over the last decade of how that timing is changing, how the amount of water seems to be going down in certain areas. But again, the challenge is that it was all anecdotal. You know, nobody had enough information to kind of put this all together. And uh, so our team's research has for a long time been looking at trying to help, uh, you know, pull together a big picture understanding of what's going on, particularly with dam development in the region, since that seems to be sort of the most impactful infrastructure. Uh, but one of the things that we've been able to do in recent years, because of technological advances in uh, satellite imagery and remote sensing, is actually use satellite imagery and remote sensing to watch some of these dam reservoirs. Uh, so, you know, we every on a weekly basis and near real time are able to look at 55 of the largest dams around the region and using satellite imagery and remote sensing track how they are restricting or releasing water and then sort of calculate out what that um, what that actually means. You know, so we can identify when some of the larger dams in China, for instance, are releasing or restricting large amounts of water that allows us to potentially give early warnings to communities downstream that, you know, you're about to see a one meter drop or a one meter rise in river level. You can prepare for that. Um, it's getting now into sort of the uh, the point where there's enough historical data to be able to look at how dams are operating as a cascade and what that means downstream for water availability, you know, how to see seasonally and show seasonally um, how much water is being held back in the wet season and how it's being released in the dry season and then start to really do deep dive analysis with local partners who have on the ground data linked to, you know, key indicators the people in the region are concerned about, like fish production um, for how that's impacting the river system. So I guess that raises a question for me about, you know, you, you talk about how before this uh, data gathering, a lot of this was based off of anecdotal evidence, uh, sort of in your experience working on this issue, but as well as along your broader career, what, what are some of the biggest myths that you've had to sort of myth bust uh, about, you know, water scarcity, water sustainability, the Mekong River Basin, and, you know, similar types of situations, similar types of crises, uh, similar types of uh, resource sharing? Sure. So, I mean, I think I don't know if this is necessarily a myth, but it's just trying and trying to sort of answer questions and provide to provide some some details here. You know, one of the biggest unanswered questions has always been, well, you know, when you're looking at droughts, droughts in the Mekong have become a major issue in recent years because they've become much more uh, regularly recurring. So, for instance, three of the worst droughts on record in the Mekong region have happened over the last decade. You know, there's a major one in 2019 
or maybe two decades, let's say there's a major one in 2019, we're entering what looks to be a major drought now. Uh, there was a major one in 2014, there was another drought back in the mid 2000s. Um, and, you know, answering how much of that is due to, you know, changes in rainfall, you know, I don't want to say necessarily climate change alone, because of course, you have broader weather patterns. But you know, how much of that's due to less water being available? And how much of that is due to upstream dams changing when water is flowing downstream. Because again, you had anecdotal evidence that the river levels were uh, lower than they should be in the wet season and higher than they should be in the dry season. But it was very difficult to attribute how much of that is to dams. And then also to understand, well, you know, if there, if that is partly at least due to dam impacts, how could dams potentially be operated differently um, to avoid some of those major changes that negatively impact food security in the region because they negatively impact water for fish migration um, and, and things like that. Um, so I think that's kind of one of the, I don't want to say necessarily a myth, but sort of the sense that there was not enough data to tell that. I think that situation has changed in the last few years. And so providing this data uh, provides opportunities for countries in the region to then go back to that negotiation table. And instead of saying, you know, this is a black box, we think we think that this is what's happening, but we don't know. They now have data and they can talk about very specifically, you know, here's what we know about what's going on, about where water is being stored, about, you know, how the, the precipitation has changed, um, about how people are using water around the region. What can we do differently to try and mitigate some of these challenges? challenges in the future. Because in the Mekong River system, at least, it's perhaps a little unique in the sense that floods are actually beneficial for the system. Uh, the Mekong River Commission did a study years ago that showed the benefits of floods every year in terms of agricultural productivity and fisheries production are in billions of dollars, and the costs in terms of damage from flooding are only in the millions. So you see this massive uh, change when you think of floods in the Mekong, they're actually very productive thing. Um, and droughts are, in, in many cases, the, the more impactful thing to local livelihoods and to local economy. So, you know, if we're thinking about droughts, and we're looking at years of droughts where precipitation is less, well, how do you change the way that upstream dams are operated, whether that's Chinese dams, because they have, you know, the largest storage per dam and those two really large ones, whether that's coordinating with dams in Laos, or perhaps with dams in Thailand and Vietnam, can you perhaps change when they're withdrawing water or not withdrawing, but withholding water uh, and when they're releasing water to help mimic some of those natural flows. You know, these are things that could potentially be talked about, could potentially be modeled now, uh, which were really off the table five to 10 years ago because there just wasn't that level of data available. So you mentioned this organization a little while ago, but you talked about the Mekong River Commission. Uh, who's in the commission and has it been effective? Yeah, so the Mekong River Commission is actually a river basin organization that was established by that 1995 Mekong River Agreement that I mentioned uh, earlier in our discussion today. Um, and they are essentially tasked with sustainable uh, management coordination of water resources across the basin. It's, it is um, not necessarily as comprehensive as some people would like because it's not signed by all of the six riparian countries. So uh, the countries that officially signed the treaty and are members of the Mekong River Commission are Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Um, China is uh, not a member of the MRC. Um, they haven't signed the agreement. Uh, they do have observation status. Uh, Myanmar similarly has some observation status, but they have not signed the agreement. Um, you know, and that, that itself is a limiting challenge when you've got half of the river system length up in China and China is not a member of the agreement. So, you know, in, in that sense, it's it's got some limited capacity because it, it only has a mandate and the ability to to coordinate among part of the basin. Um, but that being said, I think when you look at the mandate that the Mekong River Commission has um, it's been over time increasingly effective at trying to coordinate. I mean, I think even just in terms of data that I was talking about a little while ago, um, the MRC has become an incredibly useful data pro provider uh, for, for research for, for the countries around the region. Um, they've got an online data platform. You can access a lot of that information. And in fact, our team does use their ground level data as a backup to our satellite observations. Um, they've been a really crucial gathering point um, and they've established processes for a range of things, whether that's a review for dams on the mainstream of the Mekong um, or discussion over how to um, to identify 
uh, you know, potential red lines or, or, and, and doing research into some of those red lines for when impacts can be felt in fisheries and things like that. Is there more that the Mekong River Commission could do in this space? Certainly, I think a lot of outside observers especially would like to see uh, the Mekong River Commission's mandate be larger. Uh, you know, for instance, one of the major challenges when you're looking at a river system is that the Mekong River Commission's mandate is to look at dams on the mainstream and then um, dams with potential transboundary impacts, which is a little bit vague in terms of you know what is required. Is it just the, is it just kilometers upstream? They have a they have a requirement for you know dams close to the mainstream of the Mekong. Um, but when you're looking at the scale of some of these dams that are built on tributaries, um, sometimes they they don't necessarily get the level of scrutiny that um, communities downstream or outside stakeholders would want to see. So it does have limitations on its mandate. Those are just simply a matter of what was set into the Mekong agreement uh, many years ago. Um, and it's so I think it is important to sort of recognize you know. The, the ideal river basin organization in terms of what many outside stakeholders would like to see uh, in terms of what could it enforce versus the mandate that it was given um, and where it, it can and has played a very effective role. So with climate change sort of, you know, on, you know, the rise and so on, uh, do you sort of uh, think that stakeholders along the river, uh, do you think they're, they're taking actions to anticipate, you know, key stressors, key risks, key threats, that could arise that could make uh you know certain situations certain crises certain potential crises are much worse do you think that the stakeholders and the commission that they're anticipating you know what may happen with climate change to soften you know that blow potentially yeah i mean i think climate change is much more on the radar now than it was a decade ago um you know not that it wasn't on people's um you know, list of things they wanted to address and consider. But I think it's become very clear with these recurring droughts, with major storms coming in and causing floods. You know, there was an instance in um, 2018 when uh, there was a dam collapse in Laos that, you know, there are increasing risks and challenges associated with changes to climate impacts associated with the the fact that you've got these infrastructure projects on a transboundary basin where there might be differences in governance or quality standards between countries, you know, there, there's been sort of this um, doubling down on the need to do more um, anticipatory action, I think. And I, one good example of this, for instance, is in the Mekong Delta. Uh, so as I mentioned, you know, it's crucial for Vietnam's economic and agricultural productivity. Um, it's really suffered in recent years with these recurring droughts where um, saline intrusion uh, happens and it has been getting increasingly worse simply because as the water flowing downstream lessens, um, salt water can creep further up into the Delta. And so you've had some communities where, you know, the lack of water availability is required trucking in water where they simply can't plant crops in the fields because there's not water available or the water that's available is adulterated with, with you know, with salt from the ocean um, and, and saline intrusion. Um, so I do think you've seen sort of efforts inside Vietnam to really look ahead and explore what can we do domestically um, to try and, you know, shift some of our approaches. You know, there's a, a major resolution 120, um, you know, resolution that was passed by the prime minister's office a few years ago, which really seeks to explore ways to reduce pressure. And the Delta, you know, sometimes that may require uh, shifting crops, you know, moving away from things that are water intensive to things that are uh, more adaptive that don't require so much water, maybe that have higher value added, uh, looking at nature based approaches to uh, sort of rewilding some of the wetland areas, for instance, and instead of um, trying to sort of trap water behind dikes and flood walls to allow the flooding to to occur naturally because it will maintain the system in a, in a more uh, traditional state uh, that may help with some of that saline intrusion. So you know, you've seen sort of these changes taking place at the domestic level uh, in many of these countries. You know, I think climate change um, and, and just, just more broadly, weather prediction is something that's increasingly getting attention. You know, the ability, for instance, predict and start changing policies at the local level ahead of time when, like this year, there's there's an El Nino incident that is, you know, projected, you know, that can be projected months in advance. You're seeing more anticipatory action at the local level by governments. Um, I think the big challenge is finding ways to ensure that these domestic initiatives are coordinated. Because again, it comes back to sort of that transboundary challenge where some of this may be outside the, um, the original mandate of the Mekong River Commission. Uh, but these look these local projects in the Delta in Vietnam 
that they can be successful to a certain extent in reducing local pressures. But when you're looking at the river system as a whole, it requires coordination upstream. It requires sort of agreement on some of these principles about, well, what do we need to protect? Do we want to try and protect that natural flow and flood pulse that we get every year that uh, has contributed to the region's productivity? And if so, you know, where are the trade-offs in the system that has that will have to happen? You know, how will that change the way the dams are operated, is there a way to set up a mechanism to negotiate? So for instance, in a really bad drought year, that there is a system in place to identify which dam reservoirs have the most water, could they potentially release it? And is there a way to make sure that they're not necessarily losing out uh, on their their investments and saving that water to produce energy? So I think, you know, getting back to this, it, it really comes back to potentially um, looking at bilateral ways or through the Mekong River Commission ways to sort of update the mandate to allow for more coordinated activity in some of these areas. And obviously, the idea of opening up an agreement, a treaty agreement that was signed, you know, I guess almost 30 years ago now, um, is is complicated. Um, and, you know, there's concerns over what that could open to. Would it potentially reduce some of the protections in place now? But I do think there's sort of this on ongoing discussion that has to be had about, you know, with the realities of climate changing, with the realities of pressures um, changing as people move, as people urbanize, as consumption changes, uh, what can be done differently uh, and in a more anticipatory uh, and adaptive way. Oh, for sure. And, you know, we've covered a range of topics relating to water as a resource, uh, water as a direct and an indirect uh, root cause of just many different uh, situations. Uh, do you think that our national security sort of community, our foreign policy community is paying enough attention uh, to water? Uh, do you think that that attention has shifted over the years and the decades? What, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I I think from my, from my outside take, it, it does seem like it's more on people's uh, radar than it was 10 years ago. I mean, I think it's hard when you have instances, for instance, like the flooding in Pakistan uh, last year, when you had that major event that caused widespread flooding for months in areas of the country, you know, the, 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 the shifts that we're seeing, sort of the predictability challenges, the need to build that resilience. I think it's more um, more obvious now as sort of an immediate national security concern than it was a decade ago, especially when you talk about the way climate change used to be spoken about as a problem for the future. It is now very evident globally. And I mean, we see this in the United States as well, for instance, like Hurricane Harvey and others, where, you know, they can point the role of climate change in these water disasters um, and these mega droughts in California and things like that um, as a problem for now that requires, you know, not just thinking ahead long term, but also immediately trying to come up with ways to address and build governance and infrastructure to um, to ensure that we we can be long term sustainable and address these problems in a way that um that will have the best outcome for people. Courtney, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thank you for covering this very important topic that I feel does not get enough, I guess, uh, commentary on it. Uh, you know, when we're learning about national security, when we're talking about foreign policy, uh, at least, you know, I didn't hear too much about it until I took a course on sort of hydropolitics at U Chicago during my uh, graduate school career. Uh, but otherwise, you know, it wasn't really talked about as much. So I really appreciate you, you know, educating our audience, educating me uh, on, you know, these different linkages uh, about water and conflict. So I really appreciate that. And for our audience, we'll have a link to Courtney's profile at the Stimson Center where you can check out some of her other work as well. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Andre. Happy to contribute. <laughs>